Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Laird Thompson, author of The Discovery of Cosmic Voids, published by Cambridge University Press, January 28th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. All right. So first, uh, tell me, how did you get into studying uh, cosmology? I think that's the right the right term. Uh, yes, that is the uh, the right way to phrase it. It turns out that uh, when I was an undergraduate student at, at UCLA, I signed up to take a graduate course from an astronomer whose importance I didn't realize at the time. His name is or was George A. Bell, the late George A. Bell. And uh, he taught an absolutely superb class in uh, how to study galaxies and how to study the universe. And uh, throughout my career until he uh, passed away in the early 1980s, he was involved in, in uh, the same field of, of research that is described in in the book here. He looked for superclusters himself. And little did I realize when I uh, signed up for that course at UCLA that it would set the direction for my uh, the first part of my career. Mm-hmm. So, um, so looking at the book description, it, it says that it's sort of a I don't know quite a layman's um, approach to the subject to explain to readers um, the development of cosmology. Um, and I noticed it mentioned four pillars. So if you can talk to that. Uh, sure. Let me talk to one other subject before you get into that. And, and that is uh, there's a very basic aspect of, of this subject that I think uh, readers uh, would enjoy hearing about before they even pick up the book, and that is the very simple idea as to what uh, my collaborator and I, Steve Gregory, what we did when we mapped out the galaxy distribution. And uh, the basic idea is described somewhat deeper into the book, but if people hear this at the start, I think it will be much easier for them to, to grasp. Uh, in the 1970s and before that, when astronomers looked at the sky and looked at the galaxy distribution, they could only see the two-dimensional distribution on the plane of the sky. The idea that you could study things in depth just wasn't there. And yet, uh, the tools were there to tell what that 3D di distribution was because Galaxies, uh, if you study the, the spectrum of a galaxy, you can measure what astronomers call its redshift. A more simple use of words is its, uh, its velocity. And if you know its velocity, if you look at its spectrum and measure the velocity of any galaxy, you can quickly infer what its distance is uh, from a relationship that was developed by Edwin Hubble originally. It's called the Hubble-Lemaitre relationship. And what uh, my collaborator Steve Gregory and I did was rather simple. We, we took an area of the sky that was very interesting. Uh, we measured the velocities of the galaxies that were in that area. 
uh, on the order of hundreds of galaxies. And then we made a 3D map, sort of the first 3D map that showed the, the distribution of galaxies in depth. And it was from that initial map that is shown in the book that we saw these large unexpected empty regions, the voids. And so if, uh, with that as an introduction, I think a reader can appreciate in some ways the simplicity of what we did. Uh, we took a 2D map, we saw the depth, we measured the positions of all galaxies in that area in depth, and then we saw uh, these unexpected huge empty regions. That's sort of the crux of, of the, uh, the breakthrough that, that Gregory and I uh, started. Now, as you say, the book uh, begins with a discussion of cosmology and the major pillars of cosmology. And those are mentioned up front because the idea that, that galaxies, uh, that the structure in the distribution of galaxies can be actually studied and, and you might say decoded from the uh, velocities that we measure on the sky. That was a novel idea, and yet it's turned into a very valuable tool in cosmology over the last 40 years that is very widely used these days. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. When I first saw the title of the book, um, it was interesting. It seemed to, as though it would be a very specific uh, look at, at a very, or a look at a very specific element of outer space. And yet the book does, I guess it goes into the history of this and then how people develop maps um, over time. Right. You see, um, as I was writing the book, I, I sort of realized uh, the following, you might call it conundrum, the following uh, uh, situation where the universe as we know it uh, today is 50 or 60, maybe 70% empty you know, with voids uh, in between filaments of galaxies. And the question is, why is it that that astronomers before us didn't notice uh, such a drastic uh, phenomenon? And how is it that astronomers sort of back themselves into a, into a cul-de-sac to, to think that the universe of galaxies was perfectly uniform. And that's a curious sort of intellectual question, which I looked into in the book. And I went through the historical description, descriptions of what other astronomers had done to think about the distribution of galaxies in space. And I saw how it was that they sort of made the incorrect assumption and left that as a, as a, hidden uh, idea or hidden paradigm that Gregor and I were able to uh, sort of uncover. So it has the historical aspect also that includes many of the famous early astronomers who worked in, in this field, people as early as William Herschel in England and Edwin Hubble at Mount Wilson Observatory. Uh, he, he sort of set things off in in the sense that he thought that the universe was homogeneous, that is, that the galaxy distribution was perfectly homogeneous. And he sort of tricked people because of his great 
discoveries in other fields, he set the tone for saying that the universe of galaxies was homogeneous, but in fact it wasn't. It just wasn't. So what theories exist to explain why the universe has, you know, sort of lumps and folds and seems to be like a little more um, uneven in its distribution of matter than we might think? Right. Well, it's sort of a, it's a, actually a, a property of, of gravity and uh, that uh, the galaxies themselves, the matter in the universe is all, always feels the presence of the other material and it moves around. The galaxies move around. They drift around in space. And even uh, Isaac Newton addressed this issue when someone asked him, is the universe uh, finite or is it infinite? And after thinking about this a good long time, he replied in a letter to a, uh, a priest in, in England who had written him a letter about this. Uh, uh, Isaac Newton replied that, well, it, it must be infinite because if it were finite, all, the, all of the material would settle into one point in the universe. Everything would be attracted to all the other material, and the only way to break out of that is to assume that it's infinite. That is, that the attraction has to come from every direction over great distances, or else the whole universe would collapse into a small area. And so it's just a natural uh, outcome. This The, the, uh, the, the uh, effect of clumping is a, a natural outcome of, of gravity. If you give the galaxies enough time, they move around and uh, voids and superclusters are actually very dynamic over time they're growing at, at as we speak uh, the voids get emptier the the clusters uh, get more dense and in the end there will be huge voids uh, dominating space already we're in a situation where half of the space is uh, somewhat empty and uh, the material is settling into clusters and filaments and walls. Uh, and uh, we just see it at a particular time now as the universe now is 13.8 billion years old. It's evolved into this, uh, into this situation. It's a very natural occurrence. I'm speaking with Laird Thompson author of The Discovery of Cosmic Voids. You can find more information about the book at the Cambridge University Press website. If you like this podcast, Technology and Space, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my website, technologyandspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, Check out warscholar.org, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Now back to the podcast. So, I guess just to explore the concept of a void, you know, it's hard for me to fathom, and I, and I imagine other people, hopefully... I hope I'm not the only one to imagine 
emptiness in space. Um, are we saying emptiness as far as sort of planetary material, you know, that which we can detect, or is it, you know, is there something else there that, that fills the void or, or is it just absence of anything? <laughs> right. Well, that was sort of the first point we, uh, Steve Gregory and I made when we wrote our, our initial paper on this in 1978. We said that, well, it would be wise to look in those voids for, for other material to see if it's actually empty, to see if it's uh, a result of galaxies just not forming in those regions, whereas the matter might still be there in uncondensed form. But it turns out that the uh, supercluster structure actually traces the matter in a very tight way as best we understand. And what we see actually is a filamentary structure and a void structure that's dominated by dark matter. That's the modern interpretation. Uh, and that the stars that are there and the planets that go around the stars and so on, they, they just uh, follow the dark matter. They drift into the dark matter structure. They light up, in fact, the dark matter structure. And those regions are uh, more or less empty. I say more or less because uh, voids aren't necessarily completely empty. There can be a galaxy that happens to be in a void, and if it's close enough to the center, it won't move very far, and it will somewhat remain in the void. And so these voids aren't perfectly empty. There could be any number of galaxies inside the void but as galaxies get toward the outer edge of a void and somewhat closer to a supercluster, they will feel the tug of the gravity from the supercluster and start drifting toward the edge. Uh, whereas uh, a few galaxies can be stuck in the middle. So the density isn't absolute zero, it's just low, just quite low. Is it possible to sort of determine in any way, you know, if you look at a cluster to determine sort of the gravitational center of a cluster or are there, or are there no centers? Are they sort of, you know, do they have mixes of centers for lack of a better way to, to put it? Yeah, um, that's a very good question. Um, you see this man, George A. Bell, who I mentioned at the outset, he was an expert in studying clusters of galaxies. He identified, uh, made uh, large catalogs of clusters of galaxies. And once those catalogs are made, astronomers use telescopes to study the clusters and to study their properties. You can see the center of them. The very richest and most populated clusters have centers. Uh, the galaxies feel the, the gravitational pull of, the, of their neighbors and they move around the center. They're very dynamic. Uh, galaxies falling in from the outside, some that have been in the cluster center for a long period of time. And uh, so uh, the study of clusters even predates the study of voids. Uh, George A. Bell, as I said, even before Gregory and I uh, saw the first voids, George A. Bell and others were experts in studying the clusters, centers of clusters, what's happening in those uh, those dense uh, dense areas. 
By the way, I might say that Hubble's view of the universe was quite naive, but he thought that galaxies uniformly filled the universe, but that maybe 10% of the galaxies were in clusters. So even in Hubble's day, in the 1920s and 1930s, people recognized clusters, they found their centers, they tried to uh, understand the nature of the clusters, all the while assuming, uh, with, with the assumption that the rest of the galaxies were just uniformly distributed. So clusters have been around a long time. They've been known by astronomers for, I would say, 100 years now. I want to ask a question that, that may turn out to be a dumb one because maybe there's a simple answer or explanation, but why don't, you know, with gravitational pull, why doesn't everything just very rapidly collapse in on itself? You know, is it just, a, is it doing that slowly or is it, you know, what's maintaining, you know, distances and, and separation? Right. That, that's essentially the question that, um, was posed to Isaac Newton when uh, when this uh, priest, I think his name was Bentley, asked Newton why uh, whether the universe was infinite or not. That's essentially the same question. And the answer is that uh, the universe, as best cosmologists understand it, started out very, very uniform with the material spread in a very uniform way. And under uh, the expansion of what, in short, you can call the Big Bang, the material filled the universe in somewhat of a uniform way, and there just hasn't been enough time for uh, gravity to pull things together so that things are very clumpy. We're in the middle of this process, uh, as I said, with the universe being about 13.8 billion years, we're in the middle of the process of the clumpiness growing over time. And yet the initial state was uh, that things were, were very uniform. And not only uniform, but infinite. You know, the, the, uh, there's a difference between the visible universe, that part that we can see, and then the part that's more than 13.8 billion years away, light years away from us that we cannot see. Uh, there's every reason to believe that the universe, even beyond what we can see, uh, is essentially infinite. And so the material starts out uh, with this, uh, with, the, with the assumed, with the uh, accepted uh, theory of uh, cosmology these days, uh, starts out with the material very uniformly spread throughout an infinite manifold, you might say, an infinite space. And then the processes begin, um, and the dark matter, this mysterious stuff that astronomers are studying now, uh, starts to collect together, and then the baryons, that is the material that we're made of, falls into the dark matter uh, distribution and forms stars and planets. And we're just in the middle of this process now. And there's no question that as time goes along, is uh, the universe is going to get more and more clumpy. Mm -hmm. So it seems with that in mind, it's possible that you could almost imagine the universe settling into static clumps that no longer, once it, once sort of a, an equilibrium is set and everything's separated, 
everything separated without enough gravitational pull between these clusters that everything just kind of settles where it is and maybe with some slight inertial movement but you see what i'm saying yeah i do see what you're saying and it is true that uh, the, the situation is even more extreme than what you imagine. That is, there's another physical process going on here that's, that uh, you might call accelerated expansion that's associated with, uh, some people call it dark energy, that is causing the universe to accelerate outward. And those who think about the ultimate fate of, of the universe in the presence of dark energy or in the presence of the accelerated expansion have, have stated very clearly that uh, islands of stars could get so isolated in as time goes along. And when I say time goes along, you know, we're 13.8 billion years through this process, but they're talking about after 100 billion or 500 billion years that things will be so isolated that all we can see are are the clumps of material uh, that are right around us uh, and everything gets very uh, empty otherwise but that's a bit off that's a bit far far afield you know uh, I'm satisfied to uh, see the voids near us and to study the clusters and uh, leave it to others who speculate about uh, that far distant future. So to get back on sort of the technology that's used um, to make these maps, um, how, so considering that, you know, we're always, our, the border, the extent to which we can see, you know, slowly increases as our technological capabilities increase and other, you know, how, how quickly do we expand the map? Are we able to expand the map? Like at what rate? Oh, it's the revolution that's occurred since uh, Gregory and I did our, our initial observations uh, is just unbelievable, almost unbelievable. The last chapter in my book, chapter nine, I talk about the new uh, surveys that are ongoing right now that uh, measure velocities, uh, that is redshifts for uh, up to millions of galaxies. We, we studied a few thousand. We felt lucky if we were able to measure a few hundred galaxies and eventually get a sample that might be 700 or 1,000. These new surveys based on new technological advances are measuring millions of galaxies and making maps that are uh, like uh, shown on the uh, that are similar to that shown on the cover of, of my book. The, 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 the cover of my book has a, actually a computer simulation of voids and filaments in the universe, but the actual observations of galaxies are so advanced these days that uh, because of technological improvements that it's just hard to believe such uh, beautiful results could uh, could occur. Gregory and I couldn't have imagined that in 1978. But as time has gone along through the 80s and the 90s, that new telescopes, new facilities uh, have been built to measure, as I say, millions of galaxy wrenches. What impact has as computing power grows and, you know, people are getting into, you know, quantum computing, looking at that, 
Um, how much, you know, how much does that help your field as far as studying, uh, this data versus it's just people sitting down and doing the, you know, the brain power work. Uh, right. I, I just mentioned that the cover of uh, my book, this beautiful uh, picture that was uh, produced by a German research group under the direction of Volker Springle at Max Planck Institute, that, that is all a simulation of the universe, a computer simulation of the growth of of uh, supercluster structure in the universe, uh, all done on large computers with beautiful graphics and so on. They the, the, these computer modelers can do work that is, I would say, equal importance to the observational efforts that are going into astronomy now. And it's so important that those federal agencies and uh, even the German government and so on that fund this kind of research, recognize it and support the, what is now called computational astrophysics uh, branch, uh, as well as the observers. And they're meshing together there. They sort of go hand in hand with each other, making uh, predictions, uh, observations, uh, discoveries, uh, that, it, that is, as you suggest, uh, uh, a new revolution in astronomy, equal to the technological improvements that are giving more observations. We're in, a, in an era that is uh, just unprecedented in terms of uh, the advances in, in astronomy. It's almost unbelievable to see these, uh, these things come out so fast. Do you see enough college students or graduate students um, studying, studying in this field? Is it, you know, is it the same as it's always been? Has it grown? Is it getting less, fewer people getting interested in this? Oh, it's, uh, I think, I'd say there's sort of a, a nice equilibrium in terms of the number of uh, students and, uh, and the advances in uh, technology. There's no shortage of people who are interested in it. Uh, I would say there's probably fewer jobs available in uh, the professional field that is for people who work at NASA and work in universities than there are uh, willing students to go into that field. And uh, it makes it a bit competitive, uh, but it's a nice equilibrium and there's no shortage of interest uh, by people but by students, of course, we compete with uh, students who want to go into uh, things like uh, molecular biology and other forefront fields. Uh, but there are a good number of, of students who uh, are interested and uh, not only interested, but passionate about studying these fields of astronomy. Mm -hmm. How much will the, um, the web telescope uh, add to um, add to the work you're doing once it's I, I I forget when it's supposed to come online. Well, I I don't think uh, too much of the of the galaxy redshift work and the study of cosmic voids will be done uh, with that uh, the new James Webb uh, Space Telescope that's set to launch uh, uh, within a year, as I understand it. It's mostly, uh, that telescope is used mostly 
uh, you might say, to drill holes in very narrow directions uh, through the universe and to see the faintest and most distant uh, objects, to study uh, the phenomenon of planets around stars. It, it, uh, these uh, studies of the universe, the broader studies of the universe, have their own uh, systems, even their own space telescopes uh, that are devoted to that effort. Uh, but those uh, latter studies are all very wide angle uh, telescopes that see uh, millions of galaxies, not just one single investigation in a very narrow field of view, uh, but broader things. And uh, there are uh, telescope systems on the ground, uh, not just in space, that are doing these sorts of, uh, this sort of survey work. The, uh, there's a wide-angle survey telescope that used to be called the uh, LSST, Large Synoptic Survey Telescope in Chile, uh, located in the Andes Mountains in Chile that will contribute to the study of the large-scale structure uh, in the universe. It's now called the Vera Rubin Telescope, or Vera Rubin Observatory. And uh, both in space and on the ground are facilities that will extend uh, the work of uh, on the large-scale structure. Uh, in the galaxy distribution, all the while the, the uh, James Webb Telescope, as I said, drills holes in in certain narrow directions, uh, studying phenomena uh, that are both planets around stars and uh, distant galaxies that are at the edge of the universe. I'm speaking with Laird Thompson, author of The Discovery of Cosmic Voids. You can find more information about the book at the Cambridge University Press website. If you like this podcast, Technology and Space, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my website, technologyandspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, Check out WarScholar.org, my YouTube channel, WarScholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out ChrisAlvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Now back to the podcast. What, uh, what percentage of the, the world's observatories can be used to support your work versus more specific kind of work? Oh, it's become more specific, I would say, and more directed uh, uh, to uh, what, what I call large group effort. When Gregory and I started out, and we have had other collaborators, of course, who are described in the book, uh, we worked in small groups, you know, groups, pairs of astronomers, groups of five astronomers, and so on. And we could explore things with a very open mind and uh, in a very flexible way because uh, this area was just wide open. Uh, no other competitors, very few competitors in it. But now, in order to be competitive, you have to be part of a group that has hundreds of researchers in it. And those groups form and draw their uh, conclusions over 
decades of time and uh, make their great contributions in that way, whereas we uh, had a shorter time span and, and smaller operations in in uh, the 1970s and 1980s. Mm -hmm. I noticed, uh, it was curious, one, one of your sections, your book sections, talks about the race between teams to get their results out before another team, you know, sort of the, it seemed like very competitive uh, situations. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I, I can say a bit about that. I'll also uh, reveal something else that uh, wouldn't otherwise be stated, and that is that my initial view of this book was uh, something similar to uh, uh, the book on on DNA, uh, the discovery of DNA by Watson and Crick. This fellow, James Watson, wrote a book called The Double Helix, where he described the uh, dynamics and the uh, competitive nature of those workers in Cambridge, England, who were who just eventually discovered uh, the double helix, and I had in mind that I would describe that sort of process in an astronomical sense, and and that initial concept for the book sort of stalled at some point because I'm not such a great writer. Uh, James Watson is a very good writer, and he made. Uh, an interesting story of it. And yet there are were competitions that we faced. Uh, those are described in the book. But what I did is I sort of extracted what I had written earlier for, for another form of this book and put it in this form, which is more of a scientific uh, perspective rather than a sort of a, a story of personalities. And so that sort of competition is always there. Whenever you, you're doing something uh, significant, uh, there are always other people who uh, make their own contribution, and then it becomes a dynamic process, just like James Watson described in his book, The Double Helix. Uh, and it's sort of expected, but I think it's worthwhile to record those things for historians of science to see what the interactions were. And it was not only in the observational side of this, but also in the initial theoretical explanation of the phenomenon. You see, when Gregory and I first uh, uh, reported these voids, theoretical astronomers just didn't, almost didn't accept it. They didn't believe it. There was no idea as to how uh, cosmic voids could come about. And it took um, on the order of, I would say, eight to 10 years of work by theoretical astronomers to come to terms with uh, the structure as we see it. And my book has uh, a, a fair fraction, I would say 20% of the book describes the developments by the theoretical community, uh, great astronomers, uh, great cosmologists uh, devising models to understand the observations. Uh, these would include the Princeton professor, James Peebles, who in 2019 won the Nobel Prize for his work in theoretical cos cosmology, and also the, the great Russian theoretical uh, physicist, Yakov Zeldovich, 
who also contributed to this field. And there was a time in, that's described in my book where the Peebles ideas, the ideas from Jim Peebles were in competition with uh, Zeldovich's ideas about how this structure formed. And so that, uh, what I intended to do is to document those, what you might call competitions. They were efforts that went on in parallel where, where scientists had different ideas and uh, one of them was right. I mean, they, they had to match up to the observations. And it's an interesting story, I think, to hear how uh, not only the observational workers competed with each other, but the theoretical astronomers uh, did the same. I might also say, I, I want to add to this, that I was very uh, pleased to hear uh, a gentleman whose name is Sir Martin Rees, he's the Astronomer Royal in the United Kingdom, compare the discovery of the large-scale structure in the universe and the explanation of that large-scale structure in a theoretical way. He compared it to plate tectonics and also to our understanding of the genome, uh, the DNA. He put those on comparable levels, saying that uh, the quest by astronomers, both the observational side and the theor theoretical cosmology side, the quest to understand the structure of, in the galaxy distribution was as great a contribution scientifically as plate tectonics is for the geology of the Earth or as the genome is in the study of biology. This has developed into a very big field, and uh, these are very significant uh, contributions. And I think uh, it, it's a worthwhile thing to write down uh, how they started, who was competing with each other, both theoretically and uh, observationally. Mm -hmm. this, this question might seem, well, since I don't study anything in this field, it'll, it'll, again, seem kind of like a dumb question, but, but maybe you'll be able to explain. Um, so how, how the, the models that are come up with, how much are they grounded in mathematical formulas versus more, uh, a descriptive narrative of the theories? Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm asking? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, I certainly understand that. That's sort of the nature of, uh, of uh, theoretical physics or theoretical uh, cosmology, where people have ideas and at first they verbalize them, and then those who are the most clever mathematically, uh, and I mentioned these two gentlemen, uh, Jim Peebles and Yakov Zeldovich, people in that category, put them into mathematical form that become predictive. It's not just what you think about or what the concepts are. Once they're put in mathematical form, they become predictive. And, that, and that's the power of theoretical science or theoretical cosmology in this case, to have an elegant enough understanding of the universe that you can put it into mathematical form and then use it in a predictive way to see whether that model is correct or not. 
that's sort of the crux of, uh, of that branch of science. And then the, the observational astronomers like Gregory and I, our role was to help in, in checking those, uh, those predictions. Uh, in this case, uh, we were lucky enough to see something that even those theoretical astronomers hadn't thought about, hadn't conceived of in it. It's part of the story is the delay in time between the initial observations of cosmic voids and when they became accepted. Uh, because uh, if you don't have some theoretical understanding as to how they arise, people are liable to say, oh, we don't believe it, or uh, how could that happen? And once the theoretical cosmologists sort of caught up with the observers, then everyone was satisfied. Then uh, these uh, ideas of the large-scale structure became widely accepted. But there was a period of time when they weren't accepted and when uh, people said that our observations were unbelievable and had to be checked and so on. Mm -hmm. So just to turn to how you... Um got the information to put the book together. Is it all kind of based on your own experiences and what you've been through, or did you do extra research um, to add to the book? Oh, I, I brushed up on a lot of things. Uh, this work was done, the initial work was done quite a long time ago, and I spent a considerable amount of time getting things in order to write the book. One of the more fun things was to go back in, uh, in the old uh, papers that have been published by people like uh, Edwin Hubble and another famous astronomer, Harlow Shapley at Harvard College Observatory, and read about what they thought about uh, the galaxy distribution. Uh, as I said it earlier, I was trying to figure out why they didn't see these giant voids uh, in their observations. And so I spent a good long time uh, uh, doing that, but but on the other hand, at least fifty percent of it is just from from uh, what you might say my memory, but from the initial attempt I made in the nineteen nineties to write a book uh, that resembled uh, James Watson's book. I wrote a lot of this stuff down in the nineteen nineties, and so I had it recorded. And uh, I it took me a while to get this uh, this form of the book altogether. Did you discover anything, you know, even though it's something you you lived through, but doing this additional gathering of information, did you discover anything about the whole process that that surprised you? Well, it was just, uh, to me, it was just amazing that people hadn't uh, seen any uh, strong evidence of cosmic voids uh, before us. And uh, there were... Uh, people who reported, reported on that throughout the early 20th century, and yet uh, there was some tendency to, for people to take the simplest assumption, that is homogeneity, that is that the, that the galaxy distribution is perfectly uniform, that always seemed to win out over uh, those who suggested uh, with statements, hey, wait a minute, this looks very irregular. And then those ideas would be there, and then they would somewhat fade away uh, in the face of of those who 
said, oh no, the, the universe must be homogeneous. It must be very uniform. Uh, we need strong evidence if we're going to say it's not homogeneous, uh, as if there was something wrong with it. But when you look at it with hindsight, uh, there's every reason to believe that there are these big uh, empty regions and that things are falling into clusters and sheets and filaments. Mm -hmm. Considering that there are so many questions still around, you know, all of this, is there any particular question in your research that really stands out that you'd really like to get an answer for something that that's reachable in, in say the near term? Well, you know, uh, a good fraction of the astronomy community, and I have to include myself in those numbers, wants to know what dark matter is. Uh, the universe is uh, dominated not by the stuff that we're made of, not the baryons, uh, people call it, not the protons and electrons and so on that are in our bodies, but the universe is dominated by dark matter, and nobody knows what this stuff is. And there's a big push to, to uh, try to detect what the dark matter is. I think about that all the time, uh, hoping that there will be some breakthrough associated with uh, the study of galaxies or clusters of galaxies that would give evidence as to what this uh, dark matter is. After all these voids and filaments, those are structures that are defined by the dark matter. And the stuff we're made of, the baryons, this, and what the sun is made of, uh, giving off its brilliant light, they're just tracers that, that drift into the area where the dark matter has formed uh, this structure. And they're just tracers. They're like uh, Christmas tree lights, you might say, lighting up the dark matter structure. And what the heck that dark matter is, uh, that's what's on my mind. Uh, that's what's on many astronomers' minds. And that's a question that uh, hopefully uh, will be answered. You know, if, if, if you think that an answer will come in the next uh, five years or so, it's worth working on, and or 10 years. And uh, there are people fervishly working on detectors, trying to see whether they can figure out what what the dark matter is. That's uh, a mystery that uh, is very compelling uh, right in front of us, you know. Mm -hmm. Is there any, uh, or what technology or um, any systems that will are going to be developed soon that we see on the near horizon that, that will be really helpful for, for this work? Is there anything you can name, one or two? Well, there are uh, people uh, using very clever techniques uh, to detect uh, possible dark matter constituents. Uh, these are very clever physicists who, who design experiments to, uh, in the effort to detect dark matter. Even uh, those sort of, uh, that sort of research has been going on for, uh, I don't keep close track of it, but at least 15, 20 years, and yet people have come up empty-handed, even though they, they figure they can uh, build a, a special detector and cool it to low temperatures and look for evidence of, of part, small particles uh, that might be contributing to the dark matter. They've come up empty-handed. And some people are suggesting now that uh, the dark matter may be in the form of uh, primordial 
black holes, that is, black holes that were formed early in the universe and are sitting out there somewhat undetected. Astronomers are thinking about that problem uh, as we speak. And uh, what this dark matter is, uh, well, that's a big mystery, a very big problem. And technology is being applied to that in as elegant a way as uh, the new systems that are studying the, the galaxy distribution and the large-scale structure in the galaxies. Mm -hmm. So looking at sort of the... Uh... The, the financing of this work and the, um, you know, the regulations or maybe the distribution of resources. Um, are there any issues that could easily be solved that could help um, you and others who are working on this do their work better? You know, are, are there any regulations or, and I know you could always use more money, but, you know, are there any little fixes that could really be helpful in doing the science? Well, I, I, uh, I think, uh, Western governments, and here I think of uh, the Europeans, that is the Italians, the French, the Germans, uh, as well as uh, the U.S. funding agencies, they do a pretty good job uh, helping out astronomers. There are even philanthropists who donate money for uh, uh, big telescope systems. Uh, and uh, to me, it seems like it's in a good equilibrium. I don't see, uh, of course, everyone always needs, uh, has some clever idea, but if the idea is compelling enough, uh, I think the resources in uh, uh, the Western democracies are uh, abundant enough that uh, that, that funding, uh, uh, after, after some debate and proper review, uh, the money uh, is available. I don't see any uh, much of anything that's out of balance in that in that regard. But that's my opinion. I, I think other other astronomers might have uh, different opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always wonder about you know NASA going to the moon, you know, going back to the moon and going to Mars, you know, and then you balance that with you know how much maybe it's more worth it to throw a few more bucks to you know, astronomical research. And, you know, I always kind of wonder about that. Like what, what's the best bang for the buck? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a, it's a hard, it's a very hard, uh, hard decision. Of course, I, I uh, look forward to seeing these probes that are going to uh, land this year on Mars, you know, even though I'm in, intrigued with the, with the gap with galaxies and the large scale structure and so on. Uh, uh, it's just sort of human curiosity to have uh, rovers uh, driving around on Mars. I, I support that stuff as much as anybody. Uh, but these are hard questions. These are uh, uh, astronomers have a process to review what is most important. They're called the decadal surveys. Every 10 years, astronomers review what projects uh, should have the highest priority and uh, astronomers uh, devote their time to making sure that their favorite projects get uh, proper coverage at that time. Uh, I, th I think the the system is uh, pretty in pretty good balance. Uh, that's that's sort of my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, what do you hope the book will do for readers? Apart from just educating this on, uh, them on this topic, you know, what else do you want them to take away? 
Well, I, I uh, just like I said originally with uh, James Watson's uh, uh, The Double Helix, I think uh, people should realize that uh, these discoveries are never simple and they're never straightforward and you can hardly, uh, I mean, it's a mystery to start out with and then there's a, gr a group of people plunging ahead studying this and another group doing this. It's a pretty complex process, human process, uh, to see the competition among astronomers and uh, what that uh, that sort of uh, pressure creates in the scientific community. I think it's worthwhile to write that down and just to see. I mean, I enjoyed uh, the James Watson's book, The Double Helix, just for that very reason, to see that uh, he and Francis Crick were in the midst of uh, all kinds of things that were going on in the early 1950s when uh, the DNA molecule was discovered. It's, I think it's good. I, I think it's good to write that down. I think it's good to see, see what that uh, entails. Did you have any difficulty getting this book finished or published? Well, I was very gratified that uh, with the uh, editor of uh, the physics and astronomy section of Cambridge University Press, who put my idea out for review, uh, read those reviews, and decided uh, to go ahead with uh, this uh, publication. I think everyone who writes a book like this knows that it's not going to be a million seller and uh, that there will be a dedicated number of people who want to read this uh, this sort of thing. And it's left to the judgment of the editor of Cambridge University Press, who is a very uh, respected uh, gentleman. His name is Vince Higgs. Uh, he sort of led me through the uh, process of uh, getting this book published. And I appreciate his, uh, his contributions and his, uh, his suggestions. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a website or social media or anything where people can follow more of your thoughts on this work? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm uh, actually a very private person and uh, I, uh, I'm sort of jumping out of bounds to uh, have my name on this book and my name and to have an interview and so on. I, I'm, uh, I'd rather just sort of read about astronomy than to uh, become a, some sort of a media media person, but I think it's uh, it, it's a reasonable thing to have done in in my career to have summarized this work, and uh, even my uh, close collaborator in this, uh, Steve Gregory, he didn't step forward to do this uh, all this work, uh, but he appreciates the fact that that it's written down and that it's uh, recorded in this way. It took a long time to get this book uh, polished and in a form that uh, that I found was acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always glad when, when the people who do this work write down their thoughts, write down the history of it. I think it's vital, you know, both, both to record how and what was done um, and also to inspire people, you know, who... who will be inspired to go and continue this work or support it in some way, you know? Right. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, no, but I appreciate your work uh, uh, putting this together. 
thank you uh, for speaking with me. Sure. Yeah, it's my, my great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want daily book suggestions for new science, technology, space, history, and space, please check out my YouTube channel, Space Walks Money Talks, and my website, technologyandspace.com. If you're looking for new military and general history information and books, check out warscholar.org, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, and more, check out chrisalvarez.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening.